Do you find it odd that every Sunday we gather to listen to the Bible? Isn't that a little quirky? Now, listening to speakers is not uncommon for our culture. Certainly, there are all kinds of conferences and things that you can go to to gather together to listen to content. But we do it every week, and we do it from an ancient book. And we get together in the morning, even when you have to advance your clocks. We're still here. But it really does make sense. We gather because God is still speaking through His Word. The Bible. God still speaks to us. He still tells us the truth. He still calls us to respond to it. And we gather to receive God's truth. Truth intended to lead us to enjoy God most. We gather to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus is still alive. Amen? And still powerful and still in the business of healing people. But how is preaching different than the conference messages you could hear on business or technology or science or, or some other topic? Well, preaching is much, much different. Preaching is God powerfully and graciously speaking the truth through His Word, through the preacher, to lead people to marvel, to be astonished at Jesus Christ. To marvel in a way that leads them to worship. Preaching is calling people to wonder in the heart and mind at the supremacy of Jesus. And preaching is calling people to abandon everything in order to follow Christ. What sermons are intended to do, in particular this sermon, is to present a compelling case for Jesus Christ as the Son of God, so you may see His glory and place your faith in Him, to present truth to you in such a way as to captivate you, to lead you to find your greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things, for the glory and worship of Jesus Christ. To cause you to evaluate, to stop and evaluate your life in light of the reality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. So my prayer is that preaching at Jerusalem as a whole so exalts Jesus that you have nothing else to do but to respond in awe, adoration, and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's set the stage for our passage this morning. And I hope that as you hear these words that you're just awestruck. We are not told what feast it was that brought Jesus to Jerusalem, but he was Jewish, and so naturally he would be there. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic or Hebrew called Bethzatha or Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Five important details here to set the stage. Jerusalem, the Sheep Gate, a pool, Bethesda, and the five roofed colonnades. They are important details because unbelievably, well not unbelievably, it's awesome, that they are indisputable history. It's actually part, they're real tangible things. Now, we're all familiar with Jerusalem, I trust, uh, an actual ancient city still existing in the Middle East. 
The sheep gate was a small opening in the north wall of the old city, probably used to bring sheep in for sacrifice. And I wanted so badly for Google Earth to work because you can go and see the sheep gate. And I wanted to bring it up, but it just wasn't working. But you can actually see the sheep gate. It's an actual place. North wall of the old city. Nehemiah writes about the sheep gate, and uh, it still exists today. Then the pool of Bethesda is mentioned, which had five roofed colonnades. Um, many scholars, w- w- the colonnades are just a row of columns that has a, has a roof over it or it's covered. Now, many scholars and skeptics actually dismissed this biblical account for years because five-sided pools uh, were really a historical oddity. Uh, even though back in the year 333, a man from Bordeaux, France, then called Bertagala, traveled to Jerusalem and wrote about his encounter with two pools and five colonnades. He called the pools Bethsaida. Now, archaeologists have excavated this area near the Sheep Gate for over 100 years. It sits close to what is modern-day the uh, Church of St. Anne. Now, do you know what they found there in the 19th century when they're doing their excavations? Two pools surrounded by four colonnades and a colonnade right in the middle. Five. Five colonnades. A dam rested between the pools. The excavation and archaeological evidence of 1964 were flat out indisputable. And they validated the historical account of John 5. No good arguments exist today against that archaeological evidence. Verse 3 says that under the five colonnades lay a multitude of invalids. And so you have the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed lying under this area. The word Bethesda means house of mercy. And this pool was a place that was often believed to bring physical healing, to offer that. And I read that some ancient witnesses indicate that the waters of the pool were red with minerals and thus thought to have medicinal value, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, So the scene which Jesus uh, enters was a very public and notable healing pool where a crowd of invalids and paralyzed, congregated beneath the shelter of colonnades with hopes of mystical healing. So here's a little helpful parenthesis. If you have the ESV or the NIV translation, you'll notice that verse 4 is missing. It's a blank. There is no verse 4. A a few other translations include verse 4. Now, why is verse 4 missing? There is an abundance of New Testament manuscript copies. We don't have the originals, but we have lots of copies. Over 5,800 copies in Greek alone, with tens of thousands of ancient translations, all with astonishing agreement of what is written. The closest other ancient document is Homer's Iliad, with only 643. It's laughable how much the New Testament Uh, how many more copies we have. The New Testament is the only ancient document with this kind of exceptional corroboration among manuscripts. However, there are a few places in the New Testament manuscripts where slight disagreements happen, but none affect any of the critical doctrines of the Christian faith. They're, They're just small, minute changes here and there that affect no doctrine. So here's the problem with verse 4. It's missing in the oldest and the best manuscripts. It's just not there. 
So it's much easier to defend how verse 4 was later added, and I think you'll see why, than to defend why the oldest and best manuscripts completely left it out. So verse 4 is not Holy Scripture. All right, verse 4 probably reflects what would have been a common belief or a superstition of the day and sheds some light on verse 7, which we'll see later. So lying near the pool on his mat was a superstitious man waiting for his day of healing. Verse 5 says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years! That was longer than a lot of the people at that time lived their entire life. The man was disabled. He was probably paralyzed or at least extremely weak in the legs. And Jesus sovereignly chose him. The sovereign choice of Jesus. The sovereign choice of Jesus. Verse 6 says that Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. We find out from verses 3 and 13 that a lot of people were congregating at this pool of Bethesda. And Jesus chose him. Maybe he had been the disabled for the longest time. We don't know, and I'm not sure that it matters. Jesus knew him. It didn't say he found out or came to know, but that he knew. By sovereign knowledge, Jesus knew this man's story, and he chose to display his power through him. Nowhere in the text, interestingly, does it mention the man's faith or that the man believed. This was all Jesus. All Jesus. Now, some may think that God is only able to respond to things when we give him the opportunity or we give him the occasion to respond. And that's a serious mistake. And it's not in our text at all. In in fact, quite the contrary. Jesus chose and Jesus acted according to the Father's purpose and will. The man was passive in the whole thing. God's will and purpose is never, ever subject to our will and purpose. God is totally free. God is totally sovereign. And each of his choices is good and right because he is God. Jesus chose this 38-year invalid over every other invalid. Jesus owed no one anything at that pool but through divine choice and compassion, he still chose to enter this man's life, to enter his pain, and give him something no one or nothing else could give him. Healing. Healing. Sometimes God also chooses not to heal. Johnny Erickson Tata, one of my heroes, has been paralyzed for over 46 years, 46 years, and God has chosen not to physically heal her. Listen to how she processes that choice in her heart that God did not heal her and likely won't ever until the final day of healing. This is what she says. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Is that where you are? Is that where you live? If God does not choose to give you what you want, if he takes from you, do you enjoy his embrace in the pain? Do you trust his sovereign choice or do you resent him for having a different opinion? God's sovereign choice is meant to inflame your heart 
with praise and worship and trust in his goodness. Are you trusting? Jesus said to the man, do you want to be healed? What a question. Do you want to be healed? Jesus chose to engage a broken-hearted man, a shattered man, a discouraged and defeated man who trusted in superstition. Notice in verse 7 that the man's answer was not, yes, I want to be healed. Of course, Jesus, just, just tell me how I can do that or, or tell me what I got to do. He didn't say that. He said, this isn't working out too well. He was cynical. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Had he heard what God had just asked him? Verse 4 shouldn't be in the Bible, but it is helpful. It goes like this. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after stirring, after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Do you see how people were superstitious? They made this pool to be more than it was. The water couldn't heal. A better explanation for the stirring of the water comes from understanding the pools themselves. They were fed by reservoirs and possibly sporadic springs, hence the stirring. It's possible the water was soothing, but it had no inherent power to heal. After years of dashed dreams and opportunities, the man's heart just turned cynical. No one was willing to help him. Every man for himself, right? Get down to the water before that guy because I want the healing. The man was dejected, and nowhere in the text does the man display faith in God, nor does Jesus mention it. Other times in the Gospels, Jesus has said, your faith has made you well. Does that ring a bell multiple times? But Jesus didn't say that here. What happens next was pure unmerited. You don't earn it. Pure, unmerited, and unsolicited. He didn't even ask for it. Grace. Grace is unmerited. You don't work for it. The sovereign power of Jesus. The sovereign power of Jesus. Jesus said directly to the invalid of 38 years, get up. Imagine being there at that moment. Get up, take up your mat, and I want you to walk. That's just a phenomenal, the confidence of Jesus, the boldness to just say that. What if he didn't get up? Oh, you know, I can't. No, Jesus said it and it happened. The Greek says, and eutheos, or immediately the man was healed. Jesus said the word and it was so. It happened. His body responded. That's sovereign power. On Jesus' command, the man picked up his makeshift bed gave him a little softer uh, bed on the ground and walked for the first time in 38 years. What atrophy was there was gone. Gone. Have you heard of Benny Hinn, the famous televangelist and healing crusader who's been on TV a lot? I watched most of a 22-minute YouTube video where an invalid woman in a bed was brought to Benny Hinn for healing. She hadn't walked in 27 years. After much contrived ritual that just went on and on and pronounced healing, Benny said to the crowd, quote, the only reason she still has pain is because of the operation, plus those muscles have not been used for 27 years, end of quote. 
Hmm. The woman couldn't get up. He told her Jesus was healing her, but he also told her to be careful with her legs, which still didn't work. And after all the rigmarole, the woman was still not healed. Benny even anointed a handkerchief with oil and gave it to her as as he released the anointing upon it. He told them to use it for seven days and 100% healing would come. Is that displaying the sovereign power of our Jesus Christ? I think we underestimate how incredibly misleading and disheartening ministries like his can be in people's lives. An HBO documentary reported that a 10-year-old boy, just 10 years old, was healed at a Benny Hinn crusade, but he later died of cancer. And his parents blamed themselves for not being faithful enough. That's what they said. And they felt they should have given more money to Benny. That is as superstitious as the water in the pool. The power of Jesus is not subject to our plan or command and is not to be used for self-aggrandizement and to prey on innocent people. Not innocent, they're guilty before God. I shouldn't have said innocent. See, you always have to test this. God's power is his alone. And he is sovereign to exercise his power as he sees fit. Now, is God able to heal someone? Oh, you better believe. Absolutely he can. And this man was healed by Jesus in a moment. Jesus said it and it was. The sovereign power of Jesus was immediate in this man's life. He immediately got up with complete healing. God is sovereign over every disease, over every disability. But like Johnny Erickson Tata, he sometimes purposes disease and disability in our lives to bring glory to himself amidst pain. Because more than physical healing, he gives lasting and complete healing in the power of the gospel. Listen to how Johnny trusts God's sovereignty. She wrote, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. She said one time, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. For our good and his glory. The power of Jesus is superior in every way to disability and to superstition. The sovereign superiority of Jesus The sovereign superiority of Jesus. In one second, Jesus did what 38 years of superstition couldn't do. But he's more. In verse 9 we read, Now that day was the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was a really important religious day. Extremely important to the Jews. And it was a constant point of contention between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. When we hear Sabbath in this verse, we should think, Here we go. Hold on tight. This is going to get... This is going to get good. Let's see what happens. So a little background first. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So take a day of rest from your normal labors. That was the principle. All right. Oddly enough, Judaism had taken the Sabbath farther than what God intended. Don't we sometimes add our rules to God's rules? It's called legalism, and it's evil. It's from the pit of hell. The religious leaders had invented stuff, oppressive stuff, just giving people more law. And then they called it important. 
and it distracted from the spirit of truth. It was very dangerous stuff. They missed the point of the Sabbath, which ultimately points to Jesus Christ as our final and complete rest. They elevated their laws above God's laws, and one of them is from the Mishnah, or the rabbinical law, and it comes from the section called Shabbat 7.2. This was prohibited by these guys on the Sabbath. Quote, one who transports an object from one domain to another. You pick up something on the Sabbath and you move it 10 feet from one domain to the next, you've broken the Sabbath. It was just oppressive. Now, what did the man do when Jesus healed him? He picked up his bed. Now, that's not a breach of the Sabbath, but these guys thought it was. Verses 10 through 12 pick up on this rising tension between Jesus and the Jews. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They were so uptight, right? Like, calm down, guys. What's your man? Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They didn't even address the fact that he said, the man who healed me. They jumped right over the miracle and were like, Matt, don't pick up the mat. They were like protecting. These guys are no fun. Um, They were like bloodhounds, you know, sniffing around for the convict. Who can I convict today? Who can I make feel guilty under the law today? And they don't even seem to care that this guy was just miraculously healed. He didn't walk for 38 years and you're like, put that mat down. What's your problem? You think you can just carry mats around on the Sabbath? They care about their invented rules. No fun. Notice a few important things from verses 10 through 12. One, they didn't ask the man who healed him. They ignored the miracle and nitpicked about the mat issue. Number two, the man defended himself by blaming Jesus. He's essentially saying, yo, get off my back. This guy told me to pick up my mat. Don't blame me. He deflected the attention to Jesus instead of rejoicing in Jesus. And number three, the Jews were very interested in the one who got all this started. Where is this guy? Who, who was it that told you to pick up the mat to break our rules? Jesus was so masterful and intentional. It's just awesome. He knew what he was doing when he healed the man on the Sabbath. He knew it was the Sabbath, and he knew what he was going to do. And he knew that asking the man to pick up his mat would be highly controversial among these guys. And he does it anyway. Isn't that awesome? Jesus picked fights, but he picked the right ones to make a point. To make a point. Jesus directly challenged popular religious thought and customs and traditions, and he was right every time. God never said, don't pick up a mat on the Sabbath, but they did. They said that. And Jesus goes against their grain because he's awesome. A kind of in-your-face man. Tell it like it is. Why? Because he had something profound to communicate to the man that he had healed and to the religious leaders of the day. So listen very closely to what Jesus says. Jesus showed them and he showed us that he was superior. Superior over their traditionalism. Superior over their legalism. Superior over disability. Even superior over the Sabbath itself. His miracle advertised his authority, his divinity, his compassion, his healing power, and willingness to confront legalism, even the willingness to purposefully create controversy in the name of truth. Jesus is absolutely genius. Look at verse 13. 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Was this a hit-and-run miracle? You know, boom, then he, then he goes. Where is he? Now why would Jesus leave? Imagine what would happen if all those invalids found out Jesus healed the man. What happens at Walmart on Black Friday when they open up those doors? I watched a couple YouTube videos on it. People were jumping, barricades pushing. One dude was grabbing a TV, like pulling people off. The, you know, that it's, it's nuts just for a television. Man, alive. What would have happened if everybody found out? Would they have clung to him and pulled him? And you know, The purpose of Jesus was not to create a scene, uh, but to communicate something about himself, which comes in verse 14, the sovereign gospel of Jesus. The sovereign gospel of Jesus. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus went and found the man. He sought him out. Nothing is said about the man looking for Jesus. Jesus healed apart from faith. It was unexpected grace. And this healing mirrors how people get saved. God seeks sinners, finds those sinners, and heals their hearts by his divine initiative. Jesus said, look, you are well. So Jesus first draws attention to his new wellness, and by doing that, he's drawing attention to the one who just gave him the wellness, to the power of the healer himself. Look at me. I came to you. I made you well. Now, why does John call Jesus' miracles signs? Why signs? What does a sign do? Signs point to something. They help us see and understand something greater beyond the sign itself. The billboard advertises the product. The healing advertises the healer. Looking to the wellness is helpful only insofar as it directs us to God who gives spiritual wellness. God comes to us with healing grace. God is the power to heal your sinful and broken soul no matter what you've done. I don't care how bad your history has been. I don't care what sin you are currently engaged in. If you come to the cross of Jesus Christ with faith, He will forgive you. All of it. Even the stuff that you're going to commit in six years. When we are faithless, God comes to us and He works a miracle in us. He wipes the slate clean. You get a free start but you've got to come. Faith in Christ is everything. Jesus drew the attention of the man to his spiritual condition. He says, sin no more. Then nothing worse may happen to you. Stop sinning. Stop rebelling against God was the point. Why? Why would he say that? Why does he even care? Just walk away. That nothing worse would happen to the man. There is something worse than 38 years as an invalid. What could be worse than that? Not a whole lot. But there is something. Eternal judgment is worse. 
Eternal judgment. Jesus talked very clearly about judgment later on in chapter 5. Those who do evil will resurrect to judgment. Not eternal joy, to judgment. God will have His day. He will make all things right. If you rebel against Him, He will judge you on that day. There will be no escape. Jesus told this man to repent of his sins and turn to him for final and complete healing because the day is coming when those who have lived their lives for evil will be eternally judged and much more grave reality than being an invalid for 38 years. Johnny Erickson taught us said, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. The gospel says we desperately need God and that he came to us. He came to us and he accomplished righteousness for us. He died for us. He conquered death for us and will heal our spiritual brokenness by his grace if we trust him alone for salvation. Trust him, congregation, and he will heal your brokenness. That's how it works. What happened next? The man went back to the Jews and told them Jesus healed him. And that only fueled the fire of their contempt for Jesus. Verse 16 tells us that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. The sovereign work of Jesus. The sovereign work of Jesus. Why was Jesus persecuted? Two things are mentioned. Verse 16 says, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. And verse 18 adds that the Jews sought to actually kill Jesus because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, which we'll get to next. The professional religioneers, as I'll call them, shut out the miracle and persecuted Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath and told a man to pick up his mat. And how Jesus answers him is absolutely awesome. He says, my father is working. What a word choice. My father is working until now and I am working. Now what issue did they have with Jesus? He was working on the Sabbath. And how did he respond? By telling him that he and God are working together on the Sabbath all the time. That's stellar. See, ever since God rested after creating the universe, he's been working to uphold the universe by the word of his power. And he's been working to save and redeem sinners. The Father and Son are sovereign over the Sabbath. They transcend it, and they work hand in hand to change people's lives by their power and grace. God is at work. God is still at work. He is noticeably noticeably at work in this church. I sense God's hand is here. God is still pursuing us by his grace, still preserving our life, still working for our good in his ultimate glory, and he's still sending out the gospel to lost sinners to beckon them to come to Christ and be saved and find their greatest joy and pleasure in him above all things. God has not stopped working. He's not at rest And these Jews knew that, yet they refused to acknowledge how God was at work through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sovereign God. Someone give me an amen. 
Jesus is the sovereign God. Verse 18 is an amazing crescendo of glory. Jesus spoke in such a way that he made it clear that he was God's only son and that he was equal with the Father, in fact, God in the flesh. This is why they wanted to kill Jesus badly. He claimed to be God, and rightly so. He he is. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And when he said that, the Jews happened to pick up stones in order to kill him on the spot and stone him right in his spot. You see, the truth divides people. Please understand the weight of this and what this means for your life. Because if you don't make that connection, you're you're missing the point. Connected to your life. Jesus is the sovereign God who made you. Who knows you. He pursues you through his gospel. He is worthy. He is unfathomably glorious and more significant than anything in your life. The most important response you can have to this beautiful truth is to marvel at the sovereignty of God, to be awestruck by it. His sovereign choice and power and superiority and gospel and work and to devote yourself to serving and enjoying him forever. Think about that. You know, we're a church that has a passion to lead people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things, to the glory and worship of God. We care at this church a lot about joy and a lot about pleasure and a lot about God's glory. And we believe that Jesus Christ is actually the highest joy and pleasure there is. Because we believe Jesus is magnificent. We believe that what happened in John 5 is actually true. All of it. And because it is, Jesus can give each of us spiritual healing more significant than the miracle we see in this text. The power and grace that made the invalid walk is the same power and grace that can forgive all of your debt all of your guilt, all of your sin, original and actual, and wipe the slate clean so that you can finally enjoy unadulterated pleasure and joy in God himself. Do you marvel at Jesus? Are you overwhelmed and stunned at his power and compassion and grace? And does your awe in him end in faith and trusting him? Have you put all your trust and confidence in Christ alone? Don't live another moment without trusting Christ and experiencing his life-changing power and grace. Don't live another moment without experiencing the satisfaction he gives in himself. Just turn from your sin. It's killing you anyway. Trust in him and follow him to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. Um, We just worship you and praise you and thank you for all that you are doing in our lives, in our hearts. Uh, God, you are good. You are amazing. Um, I pray that your gospel would change someone this morning. The elders and I prayed for salvations to happen this morning. And maybe they will. Maybe you'll convert someone now and show them eternal joy in in yourself. God, I just want to thank you for the awesomeness of Jesus.
and how he is center, that the universe is his. And God, I pray that we can revere him and follow him and adore him and that the cry of our heart would be to show me the way, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want, but I can't do it, and I ask you that you are that you give me the strength and the power to do it. We love you, God. In Christ's name we pray.